stand, you may be seated. As we have mentioned this morning, you've seen your bulletin as well, today is Reformation Sunday, with Reformation Day proper being this Tuesday the 31st, and so with that in mind, we're going to take a break this Lord's Day from our study in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at a passage from Colossians chapter 1. So I encourage you to join me this time in taking your copy of God's Word, and we will turn together to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. So Colossians 1, 15 through 23. So if you are new to our church or new to the Reformed tradition, uh, you may be asking, why a Reformation Sunday? Why a Reformation Day? Is this just something, uh, some weird, or some sort of weird Reformed Presbyterian thing to do? Uh, maybe from the outside looking in, it, it, maybe it is. But I think for many of us who are familiar with the Reformation, with the, the history of it and the implications of it, we know this is a day and a time full of significance. Because for so many years before that fateful day on October 31st, 1517, the church, her leaders, and her people have admired in, in, in bad theology. And bad theology may be even generous. They were admired in heretical teachings. They, they had church practices that would make our hair curl. If we were to go back in time and go to his churches, we would say on the outside looking in, it could be magnificent cathedrals. It could look like a church. But once we got in, we would wonder to ourselves, what in the world is going on here? Then God, in his sovereign and providential grace and in his perfect timing, sent reformers, beginning with men such as Martin Luther and then John Calvin, John Knox, and others. These are men who have been convicted by the Holy Spirit on the perfect teaching and doctrine in the Bible. And they want nothing more than to bring good biblical theology back in a bit good biblical theology and practice back into the church. And we still see that ministry at work in our day and age. So this is a day and a time for us to remember with thankfulness that God delivered his church, delivered his people from darkness into light. And that this ministry is still relevant to us even here in the 21st century, some 500 and six years later. And so this morning, we will think some more to that truth in Colossians 1, 15 through 23. So let's pray together for our time in God's word. Lord, as we think about the Reformation, we think about uh, these men we've named, Martin Luther, Calvin, Knox, Husser, Swingley, uh, even Spurgeon, and onward. These are men of your word, first and foremost. They were students, teachers, and lovers of your word. And through that, you called them to be faithful followers of Christ. This morning, we pray that you give us the same mind and heart. That we would be students of your word. We would be receptive to his message. So we may be more and more faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Do this, we pray now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Colossians 1, 15-23, we'll stand together now for the reading of God's word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things Hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Every one of us here this morning are people who are intimately connected to history. We're all here this morning because we have a history. And some of that history is pretty simple. You have parents. That's why you're here. It's biological. It's nature. You're here because you have parents. They had parents. They have parents and so on and so forth. You have a, fi- a history of family. We may know our family tree. We may know our ge- genealogy. We may not. Regardless, we are a people of history. You have a history of family. You are who you are in part because of the history of your family. Like people will say to you, you look like your mom or you look like your daddy. Or they may say to you, you act like your daddy. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's a backhanded compliment. But we're all here because we have a history, a family. We're also here this morning because each of us have a spiritual history. God placed in your life at some point someone or someones to share the gospel with you. Because someone has shared the gospel with them. Because someone has shared the gospel with them. And so on and so forth. You have a spiritual history that has led you to this day, to this time, and to this place. We are a people who are intimately connected to history. Here at our church, our bicentennial celebration this year. Later on this afternoon, going out to Old Break Church with the history of our denomination beginning there in May of 1803, but the church going back many generations before that. We are people intimately connected to history. And part of our spiritual church history is the Reformation, which began with God using this little monk named Martin Luther to help the church recapture the truth and beauty of the Bible. And there's so many interesting and, and different parts and information of the Reformation that, that we can discuss. We can discuss the main players. We can the, the places, the doctrines, the result of this music, of this movement, of the music that comes out of it. But what I want to think through together this morning is the result of the Reformation. And we're going to think about it this way. What does it mean to be Reformed? It's in our name. Bethel Associate Reformed Presbyterian. You'll hear people refer to themselves as being a Reformed Christian. What does it mean to be Reformed? Sadly, for some people, that just has a more cultural meaning of how it structures their, their life, but not their faith. For others, it just has a historical meaning. That this is this, this kind of historical fact that they hold on to. But what it means to be reformed, we find the answer to in the central truth to all the Reformation, that bullseye of Reformation, and that is Jesus Christ. When you look at the big picture of the Reformation and what it was all about, it was all about Jesus. The Reformation 
equals Jesus Christ. Because it was a rediscovery of the majesty and supremacy and our dependency on Jesus Christ. It was a going back to Scripture, to God's Word, so that God, through His Spirit in that Word, would guide and direct all of His people to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, in whom all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Now that may sound very normal and usual to us today, but that's just because of how God has worked through that time and people to make it so for us. That just seems normal. And we would read the Bible and we would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because part of the history of the Reformation is that before Luther and his work, going back many years, hundreds of years, the Bible wasn't available in the common tongue. So, so the common person had no, had no access to the Bible. They were, encouraged, they were not encouraged to read or know the Bible. And it grew so bad that there were numerous priests who couldn't read. Imagine that. That your pastor, your priest, couldn't read. Therefore, which means what? He could not read the Bible to you. He could not share the Bible with you. You had priests who knew nothing about the Bible. They just stood there like a bunch of morons. And the leadership of the church was more interested in politics than souls. They were more interested about how full the offering place got than about where you went for eternity. It wasn't a good time for the church. It wasn't a church. And it wasn't a people where God's, or where God's word was loved and read. It wasn't a church where Christ was magnified. And he wasn't glorified in and through the reading and preaching of God's word. The church at time had almost, in so many ways and purposes, abandoned Jesus Christ. Now can you imagine that? Can you imagine going to a church has abandoned the word of Christ, knew nothing of the wonder of Christ, was not encouraged in the pursuit of Christ. Can you imagine going to church on a Sunday morning and not even hearing the Bible read? That was the church then. And God sent the Reformation. And at the center of it all, the bullseye of the Reformation was this rediscovery of the majesty of Christ, of the supremacy of Christ, of our dependency on him alone and knowing him through his word. And the wonderful thing is that that, that flame, that, that fire that was started in October 31st, 1517, it, that, that flame of, of, of the work of the spirit of the, of the Holy God is still at work to this day. That ministry that began at the church door in Wittenberg is still at work today, leading God's people to know, love, and proclaim the majesty of Christ and his supremacy over all, and how all of our lives are dependent on him for all things. So this morning, I want us to think about that in, in three areas uh, with three doctrines. And the first is the doctrine of Scripture. It was from the Reformers reading and studying Scripture that the doctrine of the Bible, being the Word of God, was rediscovered and fallen in love with. Now, there were plenty of those who came before who taught the same. But it was God who used the Reformation and the Reformers to get it out more to the public as they refound their, these teachings and, and learned from the study inside those who came before them. And, and the doctrine of Scripture is really simple. It's, it's familiar to many of us. It's, it's the doctrine that says that the Bible, from the beginning to end, from, <clears throat> from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, 
All of Scripture was given by God to chosen men through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And his doctrine teaches that the Bible, since it is the Word of God, is without error and truthful in all that it teaches, inerrant and infallible. And God used familiar passages such as Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 to convict his people of this doctrine of Scripture where Paul tells a young Timothy, all Scripture, this absolute statement, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is what led them to be convicted. It's what led Luther to, to begin to understand the Bible. The Word of God is truly the Word of God. And this spirit-led conviction of the doctrine of Scripture, the nature of Scripture, led to such wonderful things, such as, <clears throat> excuse me, what I hope many of us have open in front of us this morning, and that is our Bible. It's a Bible written in our native tongues and languages. So if you were to go back to 1517, <clears throat> excuse me, in Germany, Wittenberg, Germany, you would find a Bible in the town. It was located on the pulpit in the church. And that Bible was written in one language, it was Latin. Here's the problem. What do people in Germany speak? German, not Latin. If you go to France, any town in France, there would be one Bible in the church, sometimes literally chained to the pulpit. And that Bible in France would be in one language. What language was that? Latin. And you know what people in France didn't speak? Latin. So imagine living in a place where the Bible is literally chained to the pulpit and you couldn't read it because you didn't know the language and you weren't allowed access to it. And today, we have the Bible in any language we can imagine. I told y'all before, I have a Bible in my office that's in the Gola language. I don't know why I have it. I don't speak Gola, but it's in there. You can go and download the Gideon's app for free. The Gideon's app has the Bible in 12,000 languages. I don't even know one. I'm not proficient in, in English. But there's 11,999 other languages on that app I can go and read the Bible in. You can go to any store in America and find a copy of the Bible. Somebody posted a picture a while ago uh, of a Bible in Walmart. It says the Holy Bible and a sticker says autographed copy. <laughs> so you can get an autographed copy of the Bible at Walmart. It must be a collector's item. There's Bibles all over this church. We, ha we have them in our homes. And all that, one Bible chained to the pulpit, one Bible per town, and language that most did not know. And because of what God did in the Reformation, this doctrine of Scripture led to men such as uh, uh, Luther to take the Bible and translate it to the common tongue so that everybody could read it. You know what the result was of that work? That the Word of God will richly dwell in each of God's people. So if you have a Bible open in front of you this morning, thank God. Thank God it's in English and that you can read it. And it's not in Latin. And thank, thank God 
that through his spirit and work in reformation brought this about. Because this doctrine of scripture changes our attitude to God's word. If this is God's standard of truth given to us, and it is, then it's the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. It teaches what we're to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. That's our attitude towards the scriptures. This is God's eternal truth to his people. It's not a word that ebb and flows with what happens in culture around us. Culture does not dictate the truthfulness of God's word. Some denominations believe so. They're wrong. Man does not determine the truthfulness of God's word. God determines the truthfulness of God's word. God is the eternal God, the Alpha and Omega, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the eternal past into the eternal present. God does not change. Therefore, the truthfulness of his word does not change. It's the eternal word of the eternal God. And so we can find comfort and hope when we're told that this has been breathed out by God for our good. This is, this is the word that God uses to make us to be more like Jesus. And as Christians, that should make our hearts come on fire. Because there's nothing we want more in our faith and our lives than to become more like Jesus. And where does that take place? Through the doctrine of Scripture. Do you want to be more like Jesus? It's real simple. Take your Bible. Read it, believe it, and obey it. That's the attitude of God's people to the doctrine of Scripture. So as we find that, this, that the Bible is being read, it's being studied, meditated on, then they begin to formulate this, this doctrine of Christ. This, this teaching of who Jesus is, and, and there's passages such as our Colossians 1 passage that, that led to this rediscovery of the doctrine of Christ. Now, hopefully we read it together this morning. You understand what a wonderful passage this is. There are almost innumerable sermons in this passage. We don't have time for innumerable sermons this morning. I just want to point out a few things for us to consider. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The doctrine of Christ emphasizes who Jesus is. He is the second person of the Trinity. And when Paul says here, he is the image of the, of the invisible God. So image, not in reference to essence, but image in that he makes God in a manner visible to us. Because God is a spirit. But in Jesus Christ, he is God incarnate. And it's in Jesus Christ that God shows us his righteousness, his goodness, his wisdom, his power. In short, it's in Jesus Christ that God makes himself known. And since Jesus is by nature God, he reveals to God who is otherwise invisible. So we think of it this way. To know God, you must first know Jesus. There is no other path to God. There is no path through Allah. There is no path through Buddha. There is no path through a grove of pine trees. There is no path through self to know, Jesus, to know God. The only path to know God is through Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who makes God known to his people. Because he alone is the image of the invisible God. He is the gate we must walk through to know God in a saving fashion. 
Why do we say that? Because what Jesus says to us, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do people get that wrong? We as all parents at some time have, have, have said to our children, do you not understand the word no? What's so hard about the word no? What's so hard about the word stop? What's so hard for us to believe that no one comes to the Father except through me? If you had known me, you have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You will always know a good doctrine of Christ because it will always teach you who Jesus is, that he is God. He is the second person in Trinity. He is Emmanuel, God incarnate. And that to know God in his triumphalness of being, to know God in a saving fashion, you must first know Jesus. Because Jesus alone is the image of the invisible God. So that's why Paul teaches here that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And he means this in the Old Testament sense, not in the physical, biological sense. In the Old Testament, a firstborn son would be the principal heir of an estate. We think of the story of Jacob and Esau. He used it here with Christ, that term firstborn, meaning that Jesus holds that honor and dignity. Not that he was just the oldest child in the family. Jesus wasn't created. Jesus has existed for eternity previous. Because John 1, 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the Word was with God. And who is that Word? It is Jesus Christ. He is part of the triune God. He is firstborn in the Old Testament sense. And that he holds the highest honor and dignity. That the Son is especially loved by the Father. And all things were created in the Son, by the Son, and for the Son. All that, so that all might be created by the Son, and that He might, as it were, be the substance and foundation of all things. You see that in verses 16 and 17. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here's, here's what's interesting. I want you to think about this. We take Colossians 1, this passage here, and then we turn all the way back in our Bibles to Genesis chapters, or chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which tells us in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then verse 2 talks about the Holy Spirit hovering over the earth. Then we take Colossians 1. What, is, what does Paul tell us about creation? The Father was there. The Spirit was there. And the Son was there. And all things are created in and through and for the Son. He is the agent of creation. He is the goal of creation. We cannot understand this world apart from Jesus Christ. What everybody else gets wrong in, in, in all the ways they view the world is they're missing that piece of Jesus Christ. He is the agent and goal of creation. And this good doctrine of Christ will teach us what Jesus does. We see in verses 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Think about what Paul's saying here. This is who Jesus is. The one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The firstborn, highest honor and love and dignity. The one for whom and through whom and to whom all things were created. And what was his sole purpose? What was the sole purpose of Jesus Christ coming to earth? To reconcile to himself all things. Personally, to reconcile us to God. The second person of the Trinity. The one who now sits at the right hand of the Father. The one who is king over all. The image of the invisible God. The one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Had one mission. To be born in a manger. So he could end up on the cross. So he could save you from your sins. And we go back to Genesis 3. And we remember that Adam and Eve's sin caused all of humankind to fall into sin. We are all born sinners. We, we don't learn how to sin. We are naturally sinners. And this sin brought with it the corruption of all creation. It brought about the wrath of a holy God against sinners and their sins. And Paul says here the most amazing thing that we can hear, we can know and believe. That God... The one we have sinned against has come to reconcile us to himself. That the Father sent the Son, God incarnate, the image of the invisible God, the one in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, the Father sent this Jesus to do every single jot and tittle to reconcile us to himself. He was born in lowly manner. He perfectly, obediently, lovingly kept all the Father's will. He never once sinned. Even when tempted face to face by Satan, he never once sinned. Why? So he can make peace for you by the blood of the cross. In order to reconcile all of us, all of us who have been thoroughly corrupted by sin, Jesus went upon the cross to make peace by his own blood. And this is what Paul says in Colossians, that this is the gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did. And this is what Jesus did for me. And for so many years, that doctrine of Christ was lost in the church. Luther and Calvin and Knox and others rediscovered it and it continues to this very day. This is meant to be a, a knowledge of heart and mind. This doctrine tells us that this is my Jesus. And, and this is what my Jesus did for me. This is how, this is how loved I am. That Jesus would die for me. And this doctrine of Scripture, this doctrine of Christ, leads to a doctrine of life. Verses 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not, sh not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. 
when we have a doctrine of Scripture, we have a doctrine of Christ, it will change us. There's, there's no other option. It, it changes a person from the inside out. Paul tells us, you're once alienated from God, right? Not just distance, not just the not on talking terms, alienated, uh, apart from each other. But not only that, we were hostile. We, that's another way of saying we, we, we hated him. We, we, we hated God. We hated who he, who he is and what he's done. Paul says, this is who you were. And in spite of that, the Father sent the Son to reconcile us to him. And we are now changed. If I said it once, I know I've said it so many times over the course of our ministry here. Faith is not just words. Faith is life. Faith is how we live. Faith is what we choose. Because Paul says here, if you know Jesus, you will no longer pursue evil deeds. You no longer pursue that which caused you to hate God. You will pursue that we that you will pursue that path of righteousness that Jesus as our shepherd leads us on. By the Bible describes us as a holy people, a holy priesthood. We're washed in the blood of the Lamb for eternity. Our hearts of stones have been taken away. We've been given hearts of flesh. We are a changed people. We are changed for a good, good doctrine of Scripture with a good doctrine of Christ will lead to a good doctrine of life. Orthodoxy, good teaching, leads to orthopraxy, good living. Good teaching leads us to living for Christ alone. For me to live is Christ. And when we see that in the, in, in the results of Reformation, 16th century Europe didn't change because three or four smart guys wrote some new books that people liked. It changed because ordinary believers Ordinary people were hearing the gospel, were understanding this doctrine of scripture, understanding this doctrine of Christ, and it affected their doctrine of life. And they became these ordinary believers who made use of ordinary means of grace and faithful living. God's people devoted themselves to the public preaching of the word, of the sacraments, of prayer, of studying the word, of fellowshipping with other believers, and it changed everything. They opened up their home for worship services. These poor people gave money to church plants that they were at church every Sunday without fail, that they would distribute Bibles, that they funded seminaries. These people were changed. A nation was changed. A culture was changed. And eventually, almost a world was changed because of a doctrine of life. Here's, who, here's God's word. Here's what it tells us about Jesus. And this is how it changes. These people were changed to be more and more like Jesus. And the same is true today. If we want the church, not just Bethel, but with Bethel, but other churches as well, if we want the church in our day and age to flourish, it's not more committees. It's, it's not, you know, as we joked before, about stripping out the organ and putting in a rock band. It's about worship. It's about prayer. You want to change the world? Wednesday nights, 6.30, downstairs. That's where the world's being changed. Do you want to see more of Christ in the world? Sunday mornings, 11 a.m., Bethel ARP. 
worship, prayer, loving each other. That's what God uses to change the world. May we here at Bethel have and pursue a right and good doctrine of Scripture so we may have a robust doctrine of who Jesus is and what he has done so we may have a good doctrine of life. The Lord used that to change a nation. And the Lord can use it to change the world. As long as we are faithful to his glory, love his word, to love his son, to love a faithful life he's entrusted to us, to be stable and steadfast in all for his glory. That is what the Lord uses. May the Lord use us. Let's pray.